Psalm 15 deals with the moral and ethical qualifications which determine who can worship the Lord. The psalm has been called an entrance rite or a brief ceremony that would qualify a worshiper for entering the temple. It lists ten characteristics of a person who's fit to come in and worship the Lord. The purpose of this rite was to remind people to examine themselves before worshiping, and in doing so they'd realize their need for forgiveness through the sacrificial atonement of the Messiah. It's important to note that Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved. Rather, it's a description, a description of how saved people ought to live if they want to please God and worship Him. We have here in these ten uh, characteristics both positive and negative qualities. And these qualities, both negative and positive, are to be present in our life at all times. Now, the inscription states that Psalm 15 was a psalm of David. And David penned this psalm after his second and successful attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion, where it was housed in a tent, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, there's just five verses in Psalm 15. We're going to divide this into two parts. First, the question in verse 1, and second, the qualifications of worship in verses 2 through 5. Let's begin with the question in verse 1. O Lord... Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? See, after capturing Mount Zion, David declared it to be a holy hill. He declared it to be the site of the sanctuary of God. It is God's hill. And so he erected a tent, and later the ark was placed there. Now, for you and I as believers, Mount Zion has a, has a deeper meaning because it also refers to the heavenly city of New Jerusalem where we will dwell and worship the Lord forever, according to Hebrews 12, 19-25. But David asked this question because he wants to know how to worship God properly. He wants to know that he can approach God and worship Him as he should. He says he wanted to abide in his tent and dwell in the holy hill. The word abide means to come and sojourn, while dwell suggests a permanent residency. And by combining these two terms in the Hebrew mind, David was basically stating that he wanted to enjoy the benefits of residing in God's house as a worshiper. And the benefits of residing in God's house as a worshiper are fellowship with God, protection from God, and provisions from God. Now, as an interesting aside, the Hebrew word for dwell, shekan, is the root word for shekinah, which refers to the glory of God that dwelled first in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's interesting that David would use that same term. Now let's look at the qualifications then for worship. What God requires for worship. Well, here's the qualifications in verses 2 through 5. And we're going to divide the ten statements under four different headings. Verse 2, worshipers are to be righteous. Verse 3, worshipers are to be restrained. Verse 4, worshipers are to be regardful. And verse 5, worshipers are to be reciprocal. So we'll look at the ten statements on, and, and divide them up under these four headings. Let's begin with verse 2. A worshiper must be righteous. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. The one who dwells in God's presence, the one who can come to worship God, is, meets three characteristics. One, he walks with integrity. Two, he works righteousness. And three, he speaks truth. Now, to walk with integrity is to live according to God's rules. 
living according to God's rules is being blameless. That doesn't mean sinless. Nobody on earth is sinless. The epistle of John says if someone says they have no sin, they're a liar, and the truth doesn't dwell in them. Blameless has to do with soundness of character, loyalty, complete loyalty to God. And Noah and Abraham are two early examples in the book of Genesis of men who were blameless, that is, men of integrity, men who were devoted to the Lord. So they walk with integrity and they work righteousness. In other words, they do those things that are consistent with the character of God. And you need to ask yourself before you come and worship, is this what God would say? Is this what God would do? You know, how would God respond? Is this how he would respond to this? Is this how he would react to this situation? And so we've constantly got to be reviewing all of our thoughts and deeds in line with God's holy character. And then, to speak truth. In other words, the things coming out of our mouth have to be in conformity with our walk and our work. Remember, our walk was with integrity, our work was righteousness. Well, what comes out of our mouth has to line up with our walk and work. And notice David says it has to be in our heart. In other words, it's not just our lips, it's not just lip service. We're not just saying the right things, but really it's coming from the center of our being. You know, when you think about truth, truth is the cement that holds a society together. If people can get away with lies, then every promise, every agreement, every oath, every pledge, every contract is immediately undermined and destroyed. A false witness will turn a trial into a travesty and cause the innocent to suffer. So we must speak the truth from the heart. And as Ephesians 4 tells us, we must speak the truth in love. We need to use the truth as a tool to build relationships, and we need to use the truth as a weapon to fight deception. So, are you walking with integrity? Are you working righteousness? Are you speaking truth in his heart? Are you righteous? Again, a worshiper must be righteous. Verse 3, a worshiper must be restrained. A worshiper must be restrained. He does not slander with his tongue, he, nor does evil to his neighbors, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Here we have three more characteristics of a worshiper, and they involve a restraining. He does not slander with his tongue. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. In verse 3, David becomes very specific as to what a worshiper of God does. They resist gossip and slander. Okay, They refrain from acting badly. That's doing evil. So slander is the idea of gossip. Doing evil is acting badly against your neighbor. And then, third, he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Interesting, the word friend here uh, is the same as the word neighbor previously here, meaning the one who is near. So don't get stuck and say, well, that person's not my friend. Uh, I can do them dirty. Okay? Anybody that is near, whether it's near in the physical sense or it's near in the emotional sense and relational sense. In other words, who is your neighbor? Anybody you come in contact with, Jesus said. Anybody who's near to you at any given time. Don't do them evil. Don't take a reproach against them. In other words, don't pass on a slander or a lie about that person. So we need to be very careful. When truth is in the heart, the lips will not speak lies or spread gossip. 
You know, and the interesting thing with gossip, it's spreading something for the purpose of destroying another person's character. People with truthful hearts are going to keep their vows and their promises. People of integrity don't have to use oaths to strengthen their words. A simple yes or no will carry all the weight that is needed. You know, more trouble is caused in families and in neighborhoods and in offices and among friends and even the church by slandering and spreading lies and the people who keep circulating them by any other means. So we have six characteristics so far of a worshiper under two headings. Heading one, a worshiper is righteous. That is, they walk with integrity, they work righteousness, they speak the truth in the heart. Second, the next three, a worshiper is restrained. They don't slander with the tongue. They don't do evil to their neighbor. They don't take up a reproach against a friend. Now verse four, a worshiper is regardful. And we have two characteristics here. Two characteristics here. It says, verse 4, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. So we have two characteristics here under regardful for the worshiper of God. First, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And then second, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. See, he is one, a worshiper is one who turns away from evil and honors the good. And, secondly, a worshiper is one who regards the sanctity of an oath as inviolable. He will not associate with persons who are reprobate and deserve to be rejected, because the reprobate will only corrupt and infect the character of those who consort with them. The wealth or reputation of popularity, which they may possess, will have no attraction for the true worshiper of God. On the contrary, he will honor those who are worthy of honor. He will honor the true worshipers, the servants of God, who live consistent lives, whose example and companionship is a help and gain to those who are brought in contact with them. And so a worshiper has to be someone who eschews evil, who turns away from evil, who turns away from the reprobate, and who, in turn, lifts up other worshipers. Listen. If you're someone who can sit there and lift up the wicked and applaud the wicked and feel good about the wicked and then turn around and tear down and look down at the righteous, you're not fit to worship. And then it says, he swears to his own heart and doesn't change. The sanctity of an oath is what the psalmist has in mind. If an individual has made an agreement to do something for another and finds that it involves some unforeseen disadvantage to himself he doesn't alter the terms of the promise to make it more favorable to himself but rather he adheres to them even if it hurts himself he shows truthfulness in his action just as he said there was truthfulness in his word listen I'm going to do this but then you find well man if I do this you know it's really going to hurt me well too bad that's what you said you were going to do, so you do it. See, at the, the principle at the root of, of, of this uh, issue here is one of honesty. 
For example, let's say uh, you, you were a business person and, and you had a product and uh, you, you sold somebody this product and uh, you said, listen, I'll ship this product out to you. Then you get back and you say, well, you know what, I'm not going to ship this exact product out to them. I'm going to replace it with an inferior product. Well, guess what? You have changed what you promised. You said, yeah, but if I send you the inferior product, this would cost me less, so I'm going to make more money. Well, guess what? You haven't been honest. And you're not fit to worship. Listen, whatever you swear to do, whatever you take an oath to do, you don't change that, even if it costs you. And then verse 5. Reciprocal. Worship has, worshiper must be reciprocal. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So here's the final two characteristics under the heading of reciprocal. Worship has to, worshiper has to be reciprocal. He does not put out his money at interest, and he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. See, the, the worshiper refuses immoral gain in financial affairs. God's law specifically commanded not to charge interest. Exodus 22:25, Exodus 23:7-8, Leviticus 25:35-38 and Deuteronomy 23.20. Also, judges were warned not to take bribes. Exodus 23.8, Deuteronomy 10.17-18, Deuteronomy 27.25, and 2 Chronicles 19.5-7. Now, to the first statement, the first characteristic here, he does not put out his money at interest. Interest was prohibited because in the context, those who were borrowing money were those who were in a financial difficulty. So if someone's in a financial difficulty and needs to borrow money, the person of God, in the Old Testament context, would have been Israel. In the New Testament context, the church, to believers. Someone came to another believer and said, listen, I'm in, I'm in a financial bind here, and you know, could I take a loan? They were not to charge them interest. The loan was to be secured by a pledge and repaid interest free. Now, if they didn't pay the loan when they said, then they would become indentured to the individual to whom they borrowed until the loan was paid. They'd have to work directly for that person. But loans in the nation of Israel represented a stable economy for a tribal culture where capital was not amassed, where all the land was ultimately belonged to the Lord. And so, if all that you have belongs to the Lord, and a brother or sister comes to you asking to borrow some money, and you say, okay, I'll loan you the money, and then you decide to charge an interest, you are making money on what ultimately belongs to God, and causing hurt to your brother or sister. Now, that's a, that's a biblical thing, uh, statement, principle, precept that people need to think through. See, but unfortunately, this was not what was taking place. Unfortunately, uh, we see an instance of this in 2 Kings 4 1, where a widow was coming to Elisha to seek help. Uh, the, you know, they, they were charging her usury, they were charging her interest. And she couldn't pay the interest back, and therefore they were going to take her land. And taking bribes. Judges taking bribes. Buying off the judge to get the, 
decision that you want. You know, asking for interest and accepting bribes were sadly sins in good standing in the days of the divided kingdom. The prophets preached against both of these sins in Isaiah and chapter 1, verse 23 and 523 and 10, 2, Ezekiel 22, verse 12, Amos 5, 11 and 12. See, my friend, there is no justice in a society where money tells the court what is right or wrong. Now, the psalmist here does not condemn the lending of money by honorable men for legitimate purposes of trade in which the borrower may often be benefited even more than the lender. That's not what he's condemning here. What he's condemning is the grasping and selfish spirit which takes an unfair and dishonest advantage of a brother or a sister, a friend, a neighbor in need. And verse 5 ends with a postscript. The one who lives righteously shall never be moved. He'll dwell in God's presence. He's fit to be a worshiper. God admits him into worship. He sees him as fair, as just, as equitable. He's never lowered himself to an unjust, dishonorable transaction. He's never sought to oppress another. He's never sought to take an unjust advantage of another. So in summary, to be a worshiper, the believer must be one whose conduct is blameless, right, and sincere. A good neighbor, neither doing nor saying anything harmful to others, and a good citizen, scorning those who undermine morality, upholding the godly, and honoring his bond or her bond at great cost, and never exploiting the poor for interest or abhorring corruption. We see these same standards fulfilled in Christ, and then to be fulfilled in us who abide in him. As, for, as Romans 8, 4 says, we are not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Jesus, he was the one in whom there is no sin, 1 Peter 2, 22. And he is the one who manifests the righteousness of God first for us and now in us, 2 Peter 2, 24. Consider your way. I need to consider my way. You need to consider your way. Are we fit for worship? Each time we come to worship the Lord, we need to be looking at these ten principles, these ten characteristics, and making sure we're not guilty of any of those things. And if we are guilty, then let's confess it before the Lord, and let's set it right, and then let's come and worship. Just as Matthew says, if you come to worship, you come to the altar, and you find that you've got something against your you go to your brother first, and then come and worship. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the text you've given us here in Psalm 15. And uh, Father, these ten principles, uh, these ten characteristics for worship, for what worshiping people should be doing. And Father, I thank you that you've given them to us. Because Lord, how, how disappointing it would be to go through all of life thinking we've worshipped you, only to find out in the latter day that we never worshipped you because our heart wasn't right. I thank you for giving this to us so that we can examine ourselves. Every time we come to worship, we can come to Psalm 15, Father, and we can look at these things and consider our ways. I thank and praise you for that. And I ask your blessing on this study. We pray in your son's name. Amen.